0: Hello and welcome to the Market Bull Podcast. Please note, topics and stocks discussed in this podcast are not financial or investment advice. On today's episode, I spoke with Christian Tooley, the CEO and Managing Director for Five Fusion, Five Fusion is a biotech company focused on the development of a drug called Deflexifol, which is used to help cancer patients improve treatment outcomes and quality of life. Christian talked about his passion for biology and how it started at such an early age in his life and this then took him to the Silicon Valley in California. We broke down the Flexifol's formulation and how the research and development is progressing now at FireFusion. Fusion. We talked about the timelines a medication goes through with the US Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and the processes involved in receiving and implementing feedback. Christian highlighted the pipeline for FireFusion Fusion for the next two years and drill down on who was a part of the experienced management team. I hope you enjoy listening. So welcome to the MarketBall podcast. I'm your host, Ben Kostrich. And joining me on the show today is Christian Tooley, the CEO and managing director for Five Fusion. Uh, it's a biotech company working on cancer treatment medication. But before we dive into all that interesting information, welcome to the show, Christian. Hi, Ben, thanks very much for introducing me
1: and for inviting me along to your show.
0: That's all right. And uh, I mean, a bit of background about yourself. You've got over 23 years experience uh, in the sort of biotech area and studying medicine and, or in that sort of research mind. So do you want to fill the listeners in a bit about yourself and how you started um, studying in Australia and took you all over the world? We're pleased to do so. So I'm uh, really passionate about what I do. It's, it's
1: a hobby as much as anything else. And that, I guess, comes from a real passion in in the idea that we can uh, research and better understand how the body works and ultimately then utilise that understanding to treat disease. Uh, I grew up in Adelaide. My dad was Professor of Surgery at Flinders University. He's now retired. Uh, but he really you know sort of fostered a, an interest in biology and medicine in me. I did honours in biotechnology from Flinders University. And it was really during that course the, the mix of... of uh, lecturing in science, but also in biotechnology and the commercial aspects of um, how we translate biology into medicines, uh, really grabbed me. And uh, in fact, even before that, now I think about it: back in year nine in high school, I had a biology teacher—a seminal moment, really, where he really, um, really inspired me, and building upon what my dad had, had taught me uh, about biology and and how how our bodies work. And so a combination of I guess those three things led me ultimately to pursue a career in biotechnology. Um, after finishing at Flinders, I then moved to Sydney and did a PhD in cancer research. Uh, that was at the Children's Medical Research Institute with the now director, uh, Professor Roger O'Dell. It was, um, the PhD research was understanding how cells divide in cancer and um, And why in cancer, these cells, uh, what's called immortal, may divide forever. Whereas in typically in our bodies, our cells will divide a certain number of times, then stop, what's called senesce. That's thought to be a a way that the body limits the formation of tumors. Uh, But it seems that in cancer, that limitation has been removed or ignored uh, by the cancer cell and so lives forever. So I did a PhD in Sydney at at CMRI. And... um, furthered my um, career in both science, but also in biotechnology, in that I joined as a student representative of Australia's peak industry body, AusBiotech, and worked on the New South Wales Committee to really um, foster relationships with student groups around uh, the state and to hold um, careers fairs and other networking functions. And that really gave me an opportunity to network across the industry and meet lots of people that are working in biotech companies. And so it really put me in good stead when I finished my PhD to then explore opportunities in industry. And um, it, was, it was through those networks that ultimately led me to move to Silicon Valley, to California, where I did a post-doctoral, um, had a postdoctoral fellowship and worked in a biotech company called DNAx, the biotech arm um, of Shering Plough. Uh, that, again, furthered the career, and that really gave me an opportunity to do research now within a bi- biotech setting, uh, again in cancer research, this time trying to understand novel um, targets that we might be able to develop therapeutics against. Um, and doing so, whilst you know, so spending the day in the lab, uh, evenings were spent on going to um, what was called um, UC Santa Cruz Extension in Silicon Valley, a um, university course that was run uh, in the evenings for people wanting to learn about the business of biotechnology, whether it be clinical trials, um, biotechnology business development, and other aspects. It was really through a combination of the research that I did at um, that in that setting of of corporate biotech, and then the experience I got through UC Santa Cruz that really gave me a, a foundation of understanding about the biotech industry. And ultimately, the development and translation of innovations uh, through to medicines.
0: And Silicon Valley, when you were there, that, was that during the sorts of booms that we all know and remember about Silicon Valley with with tech, and, and I can imagine the biotech space would have been incredibly enriching with everything that was popping off. And when you were there, did you sort of meet some really fascinating people that, again, you sort of got some learnings from, and, and just sorts of insights into into how these sorts of companies were, were growing and facilitating. So quickly over there,
1: absolutely. So I I moved there in two thousand and three. So it was actually after um, some of the booms and busts it was mm. in between time, and I left in two thousand six. Uh, but during that time, you know, I really wanted to immerse myself in as many different experiences as I could. Um, Silicon Valley is this, you know, people call it a hotbed of of innovation, whether it be biotech, nanotech. Um, IT, whether it be software or hardware, um, it's a really exciting place and that you are really surrounded by people that have come from all around the world to work in these industries. And there's a real convergence across industries as well, where you'll have, you know, you'll be sitting at one table talking about your cancer research, and the next table will be some software developers. The guys behind you are working on silicon chips, and, mm. and across the road is NASA with their, um, with their facility there in Mountain View. And so uh, a great, really exciting place if you're interested in technology. Um, I, I was able to work at Dinax because of a relationship uh, through one of my contacts in Sydney uh, with an Australian was, that was working there at the time. Um, John Sedgwick um, was a senior scientist at DNAx. He's now uh, moved uh, to an incredible level, very senior position at AbbVie, another big pharma company. Uh, but during his tenure at Dinax, um, he um, assisted a number of Australian PhD students to ultimately um, do postdocs at at DNAX. And so, during my time, there were around about twenty postdocs from all around the world that were working at DNAX. A postdoctoral fellowship is sort of the the next level after you do a PhD, where you continue to develop your skills as a researcher. And in the context of DNAX, it was a way to do that um, with an aim ultimately to discover new medicines. And so uh, it was a really exciting time, lots of uh, people, really bright people from around the world working there at that company, and then across the valley. I had the opportunity as well to get very involved with Advance, which is the Australian expatriate organisation. It's now global, but at the time that I moved to Silicon Valley, it was just based in the US. Uh, It has industry verticals that are focused on different industries, and there was a life sciences one uh, that I, I was involved with, and ultimately um, Utilised to to meet a whole lot of really um, really experienced, really interesting Australians who are being working across the valley.
0: Okay, and from the sounds of it, I mean, you really had no spare time from from all the things that you were really engaging in uh, back then. And, and I mean, now you know you, you sort of started in a research side of of, of the biotech and, and in particular cancer. Was there a reason that that to begin with was such a fascination for you? Was it? sort of again you were saying your, your father or was it more just that that was something that really you wanted to help find the the solution for that really and, and we can see growing uh, sort of problem that's emerging around the world
1: so unfortunately we're all aware of, of someone that we know yeah. has been afflicted by cancer in one way or the other and you know um i certainly have that in my family um As I said earlier, I was really excited uh, as a student to get involved with the translation of biology, the discoveries that we make there and how we translate them into medicines. Mm. In fact, with all honesty, I fell into cancer research in that in my undergraduate setting, I was really interested in aging and uh, why we age. And it turned out that when I started looking around for PhD projects, I met with Professor Riddell uh, in Sydney and told him about my interest. And he said, well, Christian, um, you know, I'm really interested in that as well, but let me tell you about the other side of the coin. Aging is you know, our ourselves doing what they're meant to, getting older. Mm. Cancer, our cells don't age. They continue to divide uncontrollably and essentially they, st- they stay young. Would you be interested to do a PhD project that's really all about trying to understand immortalization, staying young forever? Mm-hmm. So, I kind of flipped from an interest in aging research to the other side, which was, you know, why do cancer cells, cells stay young? And from that, when I started that PhD, really ultimately um, started working across a variety of different cancer projects over my career.
0: Interesting. Okay. And, and I mean, the, the transition as well from yourself to, to now Five Fusion, which is, again, prioritizing in cancer research and development. How did you get originally involved in that company? It's really. Um, Really
1: exciting story, at least from my perspective. Mm. When I moved back to Sydney from Silicon Valley, I joined a biotechnology um, consultancy called BioLink. Um, This was funded by the New South Wales government back in uh, 2005, and I was the third employee that joined that after I arrived back um, from California. BioLink's um, mandate was to work with academic institutions across New South Wales to ultimately help scientists Um, identify intellectual property and commercialize it. And so for around about three years, we worked with a variety of different medical research institutes and universities across New South Wales. When the New South Wales government funding ended in 2008, we expanded the business, uh, opened an office in Melbourne, and set about expanding our uh, client base beyond New South Wales academic institutions Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we ended up serving uh, clients both across Australia and across the world, both academics, but also increasingly biotech companies. And so, to so fast forward 16 years, um, BioLink's work was predominantly with biotech companies around Australia, with some international ones. And it was really through that consulting work that I was doing that I met Five Fusion, a private biotech company headquartered in Wollongong. Uh, close to the University of Wollongong, where its uh, key technology was developed. Um, and uh, Biolink and, I, and myself personally started consulting to the company to assist it to develop a development strategy, a commercialisation plan, uh, to engage with the global pharmaceutical industry to gain feedback on our drug and understand how to develop further to create value, uh, both for shareholders, but ultimately to develop a drug that can utilised for patients. And so it was really through that consulting work that led me ultimately to be uh, invited to accept the CEO role, which I did in uh, May, 2021.
0: Well, congratulations for that. It sounds like, again, you're very knowledgeable and in a good position. What, you were mentioning the drug. What sort of drug is it? And, and I know I've sort of, I did a bit of research, but just explain to, to listeners what it actually is. So our lead drug is called Deflexifol, and Deflexifol is an enhanced
1: formulation of the standard of care chemotherapy for a whole range of different solid tumors. Um, The drug is made up of of three components. One is a standard of care chemotherapy called 5-0-Uracil, or 5-FU. This is a drug that was discovered in the late 1950s and early 60s in the US, and started clinical use back then to to treat a whole range of different solid tumors. Essentially, that drug hasn't changed since those um, probably early 1960s when it was first used in the clinic. And it is a mainstay therapy today. In the 1980s, um, scientists discovered that if you combined 5-FU with another drug called Leucovorin, you can make the 5-FU work better to kill cancer cells. And really since that discovery, oncologists have used these two drugs together. And they are, again, a mainstay therapy together for a whole range of different solid tumors, including colorectal cancers, uh, head and neck cancers, other GI or gastrointestinal cancers, um, often used in breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, and a variety of others, um, what's termed off label in that they're used as a last resort when all other drugs have failed. Uh, in the context of colorectal, and particularly uh, metastatic colorectal, which is otherwise known as stage four, cancer, uh, colorectal cancer, it's essentially given to everyone. The problem with these two drugs historically has been that 5 fluorouracil or 5-FU can only be made into a solution that's very alkaline. Uh, otherwise, it's a powder. It's, it's hard to administer to patients. So it's made up in a, what's called a formulation that's highly alkaline. It's sort of the pH of baking soda, which when injected into the body, uh, in itself causes side effects. and We all know and we've grown up with understanding that chemo mm. has lots of side effects. Now, licorborin is an acid, and when you add an acid to an alkaline formulation, it leads to a precipitation event, uh, which basically crystallization is formed. And that's not a very good thing if you're trying to inject it into the body. Again, it causes side effects, which in these cancer patients is a real problem. And then ultimately it leads to blockages in the um, catheters that are used to administer these drugs, and then surgery is required to replace it. So go back to the 1980s, when lutevorin was first discovered to make 5-FU work better, Um, oncologists started administering these two drugs together in the same formulation, and then soon discovered that these precipitation events or crystallization events would cause these blockages Mm -hmm. and lead to these very serious side effects in patients. And so the field moved away from administering the two drugs together to the current standard of care, which is administering one and then the other. Yeah. The problem with that is that the two drugs are not in the body at the same time for very long. And so you don't see the synergy that was all about why liquid was first added to standard practice in the first place. In fact, when we do the modelling of this, we understand that probably the two drugs are in the body at the same time for about 10% of therapy. And this is a problem that may be the reason why we have such poor response rates in stage 4 colorectal cancer and a variety of other cancers, in that the two drugs are just not working very well together because of this need to administer them one after the other. The Fluxifol solves this problem. Our drug, this enhanced formulation, um, allows the two drugs to be administered together for the first time in a safe, safe and optimal way. In doing so, we have basically a 10 times amount of co-exposure. The two drugs are there for the whole duration of treatment. And so what we've seen in clinical trials to date is that we see much better safety, much better tolerability, and we see um, anti-tumor activity in patients that have failed everything else. And so we're really excited by the potential to five, uh, the five fusions developed to flexible as an optimized chemotherapy, one that realizes the whole point of using these two drugs in the first place, but does it in an optimal way that, that leads to better anti-cancer activity with less side effects.
0: Well, it's a fascinating point you mentioned there because, yeah, these drugs aren't necessarily new age, but it's more about the, the ability to sort of formulate them, use them more effectively in a modern day setting. Uh, and if you're saying yeah, a ten percent window, it, you know that that really does limit the potential for the two drugs to interact. But if nowadays with the advancements and, and we all know it, technology in a whole host of different industries and segments, if you can find a way to enhance that and and yeah, raise it up from ten percent to almost you know nearly a hundred percent, the the efficacy and improvements, patients. In particular, will will notice will be exponential, and it's really you know the advancements that work was done and noticed, but it just wasn't the right time, as a lot of these a lot of these sorts of subjects are. And it's such a fascinating um, point to to hear that you know it, it's now this culmination of of the right time to 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 start using this and applying it better. So when FireFusion Fusion is, is going out and, and getting this and gearing it up, what what sort of timelines uh, do, does the company have, and, and what are we sort of looking at in regards to? pushing this, this drug process further and further to, to you know, usages? Um, well, we've got a really
1: exciting set of um, steps that are going forward through 2023 and into 2024. Um, but just to pick up on the point you mentioned, one of the reasons I'm so excited by Deflexifol um, is that it was founded with a clinician need. So the company was founded because clinicians reached out to the University of Wellington. And said, Can you solve this problem? We all understand it's a problem. Mm. We all understand that the current therapy is inefficient. That 10% really means that we're not getting the, the best out of these drugs. And In fact, they cause side effects and how they're administered today. Can you, you at the University of Hong kong come up with a better way? And it's ultimately cancer biologists working with chemists that solved the problem. And they did this with a philosophy of trying to minimise the hurdles to uptake and use of this new enhanced formulation. So they took the standard of care drugs, um, they looked across um, what what are called the excipients that are already used in other drugs across the world uh, to to find ones that were already approved by the US FDA, the TGA, and other organisations, and ultimately found that they could combine 5-FU and Liglorurin by adding a sugar molecule to it. And so the deflexifol formulation, the drug, is, is three components. you mm. and lucavore are both well-understood drugs that are used around the world today. And the sugar molecule that's already used for other drugs that are already on the market. And so the combination of those three is is very novel. We've granted patents in major markets around the world, and that allows us now to develop this concept. And so we've investigated um, deflexifol in two clinical trials of what's called end-stage cancer patients, patients that have unfortunately failed all over of therapies but um, are willing to, to go into a clinical trial both to investigate new approaches um, for themselves but you know, I think really importantly to say uh, as a way of, of helping mankind as well to, yeah. to look for new therapies. And so in the two clinical trials we've run, we've treated about 58 patients and we've seen this very good um, uh, response rate and better safety and tolerability than the original drugs. So we're realising that vision and that, the original uh, proposal that was put to the University of Wollongong by local clinicians. And so we're, to answer your question now, we're in a really good place to move forward very rapidly. Um, we have um, a cohort of oncologists, some of the leading GI oncologists in Australia working with us as advisors and helping us to do the clinical development we have mapped out a development plan that will involve um, a clinical trial starting very soon in um, what's called the first-line metastatic colorectal cancer patient population, which are people that have been just diagnosed with this terrible disease. Um, that trial will run throughout 23 and into early 2024. And then we intend, with that trial um, reporting out, to then present our data set to the US FDA and other global regulators before we then look to initiate what's called a pivotal study, a phase three trial, which will be the registration trial that allows us to ultimately get the drug registered around the world as a new therapy for metastatic colorectal cancer. We believe that it be the first to potentially a range of different solid tumours for which deflexifol can be registered, which includes all the ones that I mentioned earlier, uh, including other GI cancers, head and neck, pancreatic and the like. Uh, the second area that we're really excited about is the opportunity to uh, investigate deflexifol in new, for new uses, uh, for which 5-FU, that old chemotherapy drug, mm. has never been investigated. And so we've selected pediatric brain cancer, a really high medical need for which there are no approved therapies, but for which we have a very strong rationale for why we believe deflexifol may work. And so we're uh, looking to initiate a national Australian study uh, across eight different pediatric oncology centers that will commence very shortly investigating deflexable in children with a range of different brain cancers. This trial and uh, the program in pediatric brain cancer will run in parallel to the work that we're doing in adults with um, colorectal cancer, and our ultimate aim is to get deflazepam approved in both indications in a similar time frame, um, with an aim to try and get there and to have the drug registered and launched in late twenty twenty six.
0: I mean, it's it's an incredible timeline, and and yeah, I can I can see and hear your enthusiasm about the the applications. And it was one of the points that I, I did want to touch on, and, and thank you for for alliterating the the ability to sort of take these medications. And and think of them from a different lens and see where else they can be applied because it's again thinking a little bit outside the box and and not just sort of sticking to to what's been done historically with the these applications but thinking where else and where else can it really help people uh, and it's good to see this timeline because yeah uh, personally being not not knowing the side of of registering a, a drug with the FDA which is, which is the American body and and even the, the TGA here. What are some of sort of the, the the boxes that you need to sort of, or the the criteria you need to meet in order to be a registered drug and actually be able to be used by by patients that that need this medication? So this is a
1: highly regulated industry, and as you mentioned, these these regulators around the world are very keen to make sure that new drugs um, have an understood safety, tolerability, and efficacy profile um, in the cancer setting that they work um, to help patients and they work better than, or as well as other drugs that are already utilized. Um, another key component that the that, uh, regulators are keen on is is the manufacturing of the drug. It must be manufactured uh, to a level of excellence in quality and reproducibility to make sure that it's the same every time it's given to a patient and, and so around the world. And so we're working very hard at the moment to, uh, engage a global manufacturing partner that will manufacture our drug as we prepare for our phase three trial next year and we're also doing the clinical trials that i mentioned with an aim to um, generate the data sets that we can utilize to convince regulators that we have a very promising drug so far it's looking really good and we had an opportunity to interact with the US FDA in december of 2022 uh, where we had what's called a type c meeting We presented all the data that we had and our plans and asked them to give us feedback on that. We were delighted that um, they gave some very detailed feedback about what we need to do. Um, They also confirmed some of our um, strong assumptions, which were around the fact that we only need to undertake one phase three trial to seek registration, that we can uh, be treated as an enhanced formulation, and that we can leverage the last... Um, 40 years of data um, mm. across um, clinical practice with 5FU and Leukoborin in our submission to them in a formal way uh, to ultimately um, let them assess the data from all that clinical practice and use when they're thinking about our better formulation. We expect similar treatment from other global regulators based in Europe, in Australia, um, in China, and other regions where they'll take a combination of other people's data and clinical practice and use with these mainstay chemotherapies and then look at um, the data set that we're generating that supports um, a very compelling story about how deflexivolt will provide a better outcome for patients uh, beyond that mainstay therapy.
0: And this might be a bit of a sort of out out there question, but when you're dealing with these organisations or groups that are approving medications, have you noticed that they all... (laughs) stick to a similar sort of guideline process or have they all got in a way like you could say the US is the harder one to sort of get approval through or you'd like to say that they're all standardized and and all the same but I can imagine being in in your position they've all got very very sort of they've got their criteria but they're all slightly different which again sort of causes I can imagine a few headaches in a way but have you noticed that that or is it all concise and they're all sort of stick to the same and and it's very sort of gridlocked and, and you know exactly what you need to do.
1: So, look, it's well known that um, the FDA is probably the most stringent of regulators, um, which is actually really good because we want to develop a drug with a data set um, and all the appropriate science that's been done um, to the highest level. And so, in fact, we prioritised interacting with the FDA first to get their feedback um, because both being very stringent, they also typically provide um, a lot of um, feedback that can be very useful in, in development plans as we um, seek to optimise development of our drug. And so that's why we're so pleased with the meeting that we had in December in that having got some really good and useful feedback, we can now apply that and know that if we can meet those stringencies set by the FDA, we're more than likely to also um, go above and beyond the hurdles for other regulators. Now, some regulators will look to FDA as well. and so. In fact, you know they may be uh, less resourced to do their own intensive analysis of their data or may just you know want to have a harmonised approach with FDAs out front leading it. Mm. So to answer your question, they are all a bit different, Yeah, but going to be FDA first really puts us in a very strategic position to ultimately get uh, approval across many, if not all, the other regulators as well as we... Um, and exceed the FDA's requirements
0: yeah I mean from my sort of brief research in this area yeah the FDA has the, the greatest resources applicable or available so that means that yeah realistically when applying for a certain jurisdiction um, you know getting through there and, and, and completing their sort of criteria means that realistically that's the, that's the top level they have the most resources available to really diagnose and, and understand the, the drug being put to them and therefore that you know a lot of other uh, regulators also look to them to sort of yeah really give guidance in a way which you know makes a lot of sense because you know if it can apply well humans are humans all no matter where they are in the world if it's good for for them it should be able to be used everywhere but everyone likes to sort of control their own countries and you know that that's up to them at the end of the day but from a from a drug sort of application uh process you know if you can get that done it it's you know it's the the top the creme de la creme uh and when you know, you've you've assembled this incredible group of of people at Five Fusion. Can you give a bit of insight into to how you've managed to build this incredible group of researchers and directors and and management experience team? Yeah, i would gonna be happy to, and I'm very fortunate to be working with um, such a great
1: team. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the company was founded on a vision of an oncologist wanting to solve uh, problems for his patients. Uh, Professor Phil Klingan had that vision. Uh, he is a highly regarded oncologist based in the Wollongong area in Australia. And and he's continued to work with the company ever since. And uh, through his networks and those of other members of our team, we've really pulled together a cohort of very experienced, very senior oncologists and scientists that are working with us. Um, After the University of Wollongong um, uh, did the underlying science that created the the drug defluxifol, it was ultimately... Um, spun out into a company uh, to commercialise and develop the drug further. And that spin-out was overseen by the executive chairman, David Ranson, who is the husband of one of the key inventors of the technology. Uh, Her name is Senior Professor Marie Ranson. Uh, David has now overseen uh, four capital raises and two clinical trials as he sought to develop the drug. He was originally my client as a consultant, consulting to Firefusion, Fusion, and, and now we work very closely together. After I joined um, as CEO, we looked to complement David's skill set, which is in entrepreneurship, uh, working in, and uh, as a, originally as an engineer, and now across a range of industries. We looked to complement his skill set with mine um, with our third director, um, Dr. Bill Cotelby. Bill is a a pharmaceutical physician, a veteran of the pharma industry. Um, I met him when he was a CEO and managing director of Actinogen Medical, an ASX-listed biotech company focused on um, Alzheimer's and other drug development. Um, Before that, he spent uh, two or three decades at Pfizer and other pharma companies. Um, He was at Pfizer in in its heyday when it was developing the very big blockbuster drugs in cancer and Alzheimer's disease and others and has a wealth of experience working in global clinical trials Um, with a particular focus on the APAC region. Before he started his work um, at Pfizer, I understand as a a sort of a junior scientist, he was actually trying to solve um, this problem that we've now solved with the Fluxifol. He was working at another company uh, back in the, uh, I think it was late 80s or 90s, um, around trying to um, optimize the use of leucoborin in cancer therapy. And so when I reached out to him to recruit him, recruit him to Five fusion, the first thing he said to me was, what, they haven't solved it already. And that was a problem we knew about yeah. uh, some 30 to 40 years ago. And, and so he was very quick to uh, join our team with that wealth of experience I've spoken about. Um, having recruited uh, Bill to the team, uh, one of the first tasks that I asked him to work on was to recruit an uh, independent clinical advisory board. And we're very pleased that he was able to uh, leverage his relationships, many of which he'd had through decades of working at Pfizer, to recruit some of the leading oncologists in Australia um, as our advisors. Um, And so we have uh, Professor Stephen Clark, uh, who um, is a very well-known GI oncologist based at North Shore in Sydney. Um, Andrew McLaughlin, the Dean of Pharmacy at um, University of Sydney. Ultimately, our drug is about delivering. Five of you look and look one better, and so understanding pharmacy is key. And we're very you know, very pleased for Andrew, um, Professor John Symes, an expert in clinical trial design. He set up the Centre for Excellence in Clinical Trial Design at the University of Sydney, and has been a chief architect around our thinking about our Phase Three trial and that we we'll ultimately use to get our drug approved around the world. And the fourth member of our advisory board, John Zalkberg, a very experienced and highly regarded oncologist based in Melbourne, Uh, in fact has a prize named after him that's given out to the most promising oncologists every year in in geo-oncology. And so that collection of those four uh, working together has been a real asset as we've sought to develop the drug. And we're very fortunate to have our founding scientists and clinicians also working with us, Professor Phil Klingon, who I mentioned, who founded the company, uh, Marie Ranson, who I mentioned, and uh, John Bremner, a highly regarded chemist that ultimately came up with the formulation. Um, we've also been able to establish relationships with lots of um, leading um, service provider organizations that have core expertise in the regulatory area. Uh, We're hoping to announce very shortly a similar group in manufacturing for our drug. Um, we're working with the University of Wollongong and the University of South Australia uh, to do other aspects that are very important to development. And so we've really built a team, and we're looking to expand that further as we really now now are looking to the pointy end of drug development,
0: where we're starting to plan for our phase three trial. Yeah, it's already you can hear the the wealth of knowledge and experience from. Years and years and and yeah, it's it's a great sort of group of people that clearly are all sort of in the same direction-minded, and they all want to achieve this, you know, set goal, uh, which is just incredible to hear. And I mentioned at the beginning that uh, Five Fusion is going through the process of of an IPO and initial public offering. uh, And there's I was going to say. How's how's all that going, and and what are sort of some of the key aspects of, of going through for the IPO? Well, we're we're hoping to do an IPO mid 2024. Right now we're in a
1: pre-IPO round and we're looking to raise capital, essentially to do all the preparatory steps that we need to before we initiate the phase three trial. Those preparatory steps involve um, engaging that contract manufacturing organization that will manufacture a sufficient amount of the drug that can be utilized in the phase three trial. Similarly, the clinical work that we're doing both in adult cancers with first-line metastatic colorectal cancer and those in children with pediatric brain cancer will be funded by some of the proceeds that we're looking to raise now. Um, we're also wanting to prepare for the IPO. So Mm. as listeners will know, um, there's lots of very important corporate governance and other aspects that need to be put in place um, as we lead up to a fundraising. Now, right now in 2023, there are market jitters, there are issues with with, uh, concerns about inflation and other aspects. Um, We're not seeking to do an IPO now. Um, Our plan has always been to do it before we start the phase three trial, and that works out to around mid-2024. When we speak to people, there's a general consensus that the IPO window should be open by then and that uh, ASX and other global um, marketplaces will be looking for promising companies like Firefusion uh, to be raising money. And we think we'll have a really good story then. I mean, we think we have a really good story now, but then well, yeah, we'll very be, good um, one now. We'll be um poised to start a phase three trial. And that will be one phase three trial required to get to market. Um we will have some really good understanding of the budget, the timelines. We'll have had recent engagement with both the FDA and other regulators around the world. And so essentially have some level of endorsement for them on our plan and thus give incoming investors, a lot of certainty. So today, back in our, our pre-IPO, uh, March 2023, we're looking really for investors to partner with us through this next 12 to 18 months, uh, who understand the unmet medical need of these cancers, understand the drug that we are developing and the really pretty clear and uh, understandable steps that we need to do between now and getting to that start of that phase three and that IPO we had some good support um, with um, existing shareholders wanting to invest and a range of other support um, from institutions um, and other funds uh, around the country who are looking to um, work with us to ultimately do those final steps before we start the phase three trial. I should point out as well, uh, we're going after very large market opportunities. And so um, colorectal cancer, a significant market, it is um, one of the most prevalent cancers. Metastatic colorectal cancer is about 20 to 30% of patients with colorectal cancer and has a market over $12 billion per annum. In paediatric brain cancer, um, that that, um, collection of different brain cancers in children approaches around $2 billion per annum. When we think about the solid tumours that are currently treated with 5-FU, suboptimally, I might add, Um, That is a roundabout cancers with a global incidence of around 6 million patients. We believe deflexifol has the real potential to replace 5-FU wherever it's used in the treatment of solid tumors. And so that represents a particularly significant opportunity. Um, We're going after metastatic colorectal cancer first because the vast majority of patients are treated with 5-FU. We've already shown in these end-stage type patients that Deflexifol is a very useful drug. Um, The first line setting is much larger market than we've tested so far, and it really, really set us up to then have oncologists take up our drug and utilise it across a variety of other cancers as well. Similarly, that parallel track in paediatric brain cancer is something where we're hoping to be the first drug approved for the treatment of paediatric brain cancers. And this, again, represents a foundation from which we can then uh, hopefully uh, develop defoxifol for use in adult brain cancers as well. And we all will have heard about glioblastoma as being a very significant uh, brain cancer that, that's afflicted many uh, people around the world, including very famous uh, people uh, over the last few years. Again, a, um, a cancer for which there are very limited therapies that don't work very well. There's a really big commercial opportunity, uh, and that, uh, dovetailing into the significant unmet medical need, the need to create safer and more efficacious therapies is something that 5Fusion is moving rapidly towards.
0: I think that's a, a beautiful summary for, yeah, and I think me getting a little bit ahead of myself saying IPO, but there's always, there's stages involved. So for listeners that that want to get more information about everything 5Fusion does, I, I know there's the, the website, of course, but where else can can listeners get in contact and learn more and, and even follow just 5Fusion's a uh, hopeful uh, progression into into really addressing these these um, concerns and and help people in in the future. So certainly uh, go to our website, but also we have a very active LinkedIn page.
1: Um, search Five Fusion, you'll find that. Uh, or contact me directly. I'd be pleased to talk further with those that are interested. By my email address is c. at fivefusion.com. Uh, you'll find um, those details on the website, and you can also contact through LinkedIn. So, thanks very much, Ben. It's been great to talk to you and to um, to share Five uh, Fusion and what we're doing.
0: Yeah, the the story and where it's come from and where it's going really is a it, it's a testament to yourself and the team. And and yeah, it's it's an exciting prospect. And and yeah, I look forward to having you back on when you really start ramping up these next stages and and seeing how much further the company is progressing and. And yeah, at the end of the day, it's helping real people. Um, So it's, yeah, a credit to you. So thank you for taking the time to speak with me and and I look forward to touching base uh, as 5Fusion progresses down this, this path. Thanks very much, Ben. Thanks for listening to the Market Bull podcast. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to like and subscribe. You can follow the Market Bull on our socials at Twitter and LinkedIn by searching the Market Bull. You can also subscribe to our newsletter on the website by visiting www.themarketball.com.au.